Let's begin with prayer. <clears throat> Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to gather, to know you, trust you, learn your word, encourage one another, pray for one another, and allow you to teach us what your church is about so we might live uh, in faith and obedience um, with you and one another. We ask in Jesus' name that you'd give us wisdom. Amen. Did I cover the idea of visitation last week? I don't know that I did. All right. There's an important word. It's not used right here, but this is pertinent to elders, overseers, shepherds. I did cover this, I know. Overseers, episcopos, el uh, elders, presbyteros, and then to shepherd, which is a verb here. The word is shepherd, it comes from the Old Testament and New in the sense that the shepherd, Jesus is the good shepherd. It lays down his life for the sheep. We'll look at some verses about that. So rather than having, as this will be covered last time, rather than having this hierarchical structure as human institutions are prone to do with some highly powerful person on earth in charge of that structure, the mon monarchial bishop, which would be, you know, the Pope in the Roman Catholic system and different, ver different versions of that. And then you work your way down and then it has tentacles throughout the world where there are people who claim to be Christian, some of whom are. That is not the biblical pattern for the church. So the first thing we need to know that we covered last week is that the monarchical bishop is not biblical. And I have a citation from one of my commentaries by Dr. Polhill, a, a monarchical bishop ruling over a number of congregations is clearly not in view. <clears throat> Such an organization does not seem to have developed until the second century. In the New Testament, where the term episkopos is used of a church office, it seems to be virtually interchangeable with the term elder, presbyteros. That would seem to be the case here since the Ephesian elders are denoted elders in verse 17. In this instance, however, the term may not be used to denote an office at all, but rather a function. That's what we want to get to, that of overseeing the flock. That would seem to be indicated by the juxtaposition of the term shepherd to overseer in verse 28, and the fact that the Septuagint sometimes used the term episkopos for shepherds. Thus, the Ephesian leaders, who were not designated as bishops, but rather as elders, who function to watch over the flock of God, this image of leaders as shepherds of God's flock permeates, says Paul Hill, all of verses 28 through 30 as a common biblical theme. As, and before we 
delve more deeply into that. I know I'm going slowly here, but this is utterly essential for defining a church. And I consider that a, a primary goal that I have as long as God gives me breath and life and a clear mind is to define the church biblically. I don't have any authority to define the church. God's already done it. But the question I had and have had, and I had even at seminary sitting under, by God's providence, some of the finest professors who all left um, by the time Eric got there. And um, the church has, with its theologians and experts in the text, always had some good definitions. And they're still somewhat correct and functional. And the thing that shocked me when I was studying this was that how could it be that the correct words have developed that would indicate an understanding of the church as defined in the New Testament, but it's not practiced? In other words, you have the idea of the visible church, the, in, in, the visible church, the invisible church, that is those who show up in a Christian gathering and those who are actually born of God and redeemed. That concept is there. The idea of the church universal and triumphant, meaning all the redeemed who have already gone to be with the Lord. The church militant, those who are redeemed part of the family of God who are on the scene of history, still in the middle of the battle. The terms are there. But this concept isn't that hard. And so you notice even Paul Hill uses seems to when it's when is would be appropriate. Because whatever auspices you're working under is not set up that way most of the time. So there are no authorities in the church outside of the local church beyond the authority of scripture. But that's not how Christendom functions. And it's not how it functions since clear back, as he said here in the second century, at least in the third century, that all changed. And the idea has, is in my mind, what's really Hard to explain other than just the fact of the fall. If the theologians and Bible interpreters know what the categories are and can use good terms to describe them, why is it not practiced? Why do we have bishops and archbishops or district superintendents or presidents of whatever group that's out there and then the, the battle goes on and uh, angst and words are thrown around and people get all up in arms. Who's going to be in charge of whatever, the Southern Baptist or whatever? And when they try to get me drawn into it, I say, what do I, I don't care. Southern Baptist Convention, whatever they call it, is not the church. So why wait? If you have somebody really good and talented, why waste their time being in charge of it? They should be in a church somewhere caring for the flock. Or they can write books and commentaries. 
the theological journals that anyone can get through their logo software to help them, whatever the talent is. But so what happens is the persons that are probably very talented, the best and the brightest, are taken out of the local church and given a promotion to be in charge of an entire denomination or of the state in some denomination or a seminary or whatever. And so then when they end up there, the priorities always change. And the reason the priorities change is that all these different people are want their whatever it is. And so then it becomes political. The bigger the structure, the more politics comes into it. And then the next thing you know, somebody's offended if you use the wrong pronoun. And uh, that's exactly what happened already in the 90s. And so when I was in seminary, here comes people saying, I, if I'm going to go to your seminary, I don't want the, wor- uh, the, the pronoun he used in a generic sense, even though they admit the Bible does that. No, I want to learn the Bible. I want to get the tools. I want to be trained and equipped for the work of the ministry. Pronouns are it's not going to help me with that. But that's what happens. So I believe that this is correct. This is where the rubber meets the road, to use a contemporary analogy or metaphor. This is the church. And the church militant is still what it is. And what's uh, tragic about it is that now God's elect in the church militant on the scene of history are so scattered that it's hard for them to even know each other. There may be a massive organization with people who know God and love God, and they have a hard time finding six people in this whole group that want to get together and celebrate their mutual salvation. Very, very hard to even do. And if they start getting too concerned about that, They'll probably be told you'll be happier somewhere else. Um, Well, that's why we have to be welcoming to God's elect. How do we know? I mean, even that's a battle. There's a whole massive group of people don't believe there is any elect. So then how you can't even describe what the Bible uses, the very terms the Bible uses so then that's just a lot of work we got to do. No, we're not excluding people. We're just telling you how it ended up that you're serving God. It was his grace and mercy through Christ that brought you to him. And if had he not done that, I'd be just as wicked as anybody else out there. And he gets all the glory, but I'm just as responsible. Do you understand? So there are people who will respond to the truth that if they're taught the word of God and if somebody cares about their well-being and somebody will pray for them and they learn to pray for one another and respond to take care of each other's needs, which Christians always do. They've done that since the very first Christians in the book of Acts. That's what Christians do. But when you get stuck at an institution with all of this hierarchy, then every problem becomes an opportunity to create more political structure 
to, uh, to gain more money, to gain more opportunities to create a program so that rather than having a brother or sister in Christ or your family or whatever to take care of each other as we have opportunity, you've got to go fund the institution, staff the institution, create this thing that goes on and so people can go apply for the what it is they might need and it becomes impersonal and not uh, evidence to anybody in the world that God's at work in the family of God because behold how they love one another. And it's heartbreaking to see it. And when we fight the political battles out here in the world, they're not whole, they're, there's plenty of people from what any ordinary citizen would see as the church going before the state demanding the things that we hate. The churches are just as uh, promotion, uh, promoting of some of the things that are abhorrent to us. And so why would the politician who doesn't even know Christ say, well, okay, the church is uh, wanting this and the church wants that and they come in front of us. And then why should we listen to some other Christians that don't like it? If the church can't tell the difference between a, the real church uh, and the organizational institutional church, why do you think secular politicians would know the difference? So they assume, they assume the church wants all these things. And that's what happened. That's why we were in this situation where you can't just speak the Bible for what it says in the institutional church. So I'm as motivated as I can be motivated about anything is to define the church biblically. And why not practice what we already know is true? The very scholars who can define the terms accurately and biblically and know what it says are in groups that will not reward them trying to live that out. They will be excluded if they live out what they know to be true. Isn't that shameful? So I thank God for the local church. You tolerate me telling you what's true. And I don't say that to demean you, but I, I, I praise uh, God for giving people a hunger for the truth. Yes, Brother Wait, Ryan. can I just say something real quick? Go ahead. You go ahead no, first. Okay, thanks. Um, yeah, I, I went to a church up in Brooklyn Park that was a part of the Baptist General Conference, and they had the big guy Shevlin come in and, and give his big two thing. Their goal was to build a mega church, and this is what he said from the pulpit. Our own pastor said this from the pulpit. He said, doctrine's not important. What's important is unity. And, and they were shoving this Rick Warren down our throats to try and build a megachurch to give everybody what they wanted to hear. Yeah, that, well, then that's why I, I'm utterly convinced that the biblical definition of the church is critical because religious consumers are not the church. The, those who are part of the church because they're blood-bought, Notice how there is a church to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood, which gives gra gravity, uh, weightiness, profundity to 
what, what is important. It should just weigh heavily on us. If he purchased the church with his own blood, I can't be giving them some program that has no eternal value. I hope you heard Eric's sermon last week. That was awesome. Yes, go ahead. Um, do you think that this type of thinking started with Constantine, where he, you know, he was a political person and he brought these things and solved his problems that way or thought to solve it? Was that, would you say that's kind of the beginning? The, if of you study church history, that's certainly a big factor is when Rome endorsed the church. The, the tendency is there anyhow. Eric, God bless you. We're, we're talking about how it is we could have the clear teaching in the Bible about what the church is and why it's not practiced. Okay. And I, I mentioned the pronouns at Bethel Seminary and all that stuff. Um, yeah, you, I think that's the salient question is how is it that this all started, the institutional church? This last week or two weeks, I started reading an essay, I think I mentioned by Abraham Kuyper, who was a Dutch reformed well. guy from 1870, and they were having a controversy. And so I'm reading his claim that the church is both organic and institutional. And he's highly regarded. In fact, Rick Warren called himself a Kuyper Calvinist, not a hyper. Of course, he likes to play on words. Uh, but Kuyper wanted to defend. I mentioned this last week, so I won't go over that again. So uh, here's the thing. Kuyper, who's considered highly regarded amongst people who want some sort of a culture war and social church and an institutional church, Kuyper did not even claim that the institutional church existed during the time of the apostles. He doesn't claim that because he knows it didn't. And he allegorized this passage in Ephesians to try to make a claim rooted and grounded. Rooted is organic, grounded is institutional. But how can it mean that when there was no institutional church? Now, in my opinion, one of the things that perpetuates this, that makes this fall on deaf ears, is the false claim is that church is the new Israel. Because Israel had a political structure. Okay? And Israel, in Israel, you at least came into the Israelite family through birth and circumcision. Born of Jewish parents and circumcised. And so the twist of doctrine that underlies many versions of the institutional church is taking one verse that you could probably say might mean uh, the church in Israel is using, that's the one in Galatians, the Israel of God. All of the rest of verses in the New Testament when it talks about Israel, it's actually Israel. So that one verse proves the church is the new Israel and God's done with Israel. And therefore, eschatology becomes um, history and what does it say? All, all, all prophecy is history, 70 AD. And so all that goes on. And so then why not build a new Israel with a structure? 
and geographical territories and things like that. And people that we know and love who do know the Lord, I don't doubt, buy into that lie. And they feel obligated to keep promoting the institutional church because that, that they see as their blessed hope. That the church is going to triumph in, in history and give us the kingdom of God on earth without the king present. And this just, that's why, Rich, that's why that's going on. That's what they want. If we get everybody Christianized, because the narrow gate doesn't change because you have 22,000 people in your church, 90 some percent of which are probably not even saved. And we know someone that went to that group who was told he couldn't be there if he was going to teach Romans in a local Bible study. The word of God is always a threat to the institutional church. That's why they would not allow, at the beginning, they martyred people for having the temerity to translate the scriptures into the common vernacular. Because if the people actually know what the Bible says, they'll say, well, then why are you telling me this? Why are you preaching this? And they start judging prophecy, 1 Corinthians 14. And they see that as a threat, and then, well, you need to go. Or, back then, it was, you need to die. Eric, do you have a comment on this? Because you lived through it yourself. Okay. I just wanted to say that this this spiritual battle and this drive towards uh, ecumenicalism, there's people and organizations out there, Bob, they don't want people like you defining the church. That would go, we know at the end that everything's moving towards a one religious, a one religion system. So why would they want people like you defining the church? That goes against everything they would want. Well, the thing that they get in an awkward position because when I was in seminary, it was very interesting because I already thought this way. And we, so I got into every discussion in class, and I had some great teachers. They didn't dispute my definition. Um, and the, I, I thank God for the great professors I had, all of which had left by the time Eric was that much later. Um, but it's the same thing. It, the reality of what you're living in day by day and throughout your life in the institutional church is at odds with what you know to be true. And your survival, and I'm not attributing bad motives to the teachers or the preachers or the people that have things because God knows the heart. Only God knows the heart. And uh, But I can tell you what's happened in my own life that was amazing that, that I even saw it was the best teacher I had at Bible college, Reverend Wesley Smith, fantastic teacher. He was in Assemblies of God. And he, was, he knew the scriptures. He, I took his summer classes. I took historical theology, any class I could get. He taught John so well. I sat in the front row with my little old-fashioned mic a tape recorder and then take it off a little cassette because I didn't have any money, put them on one track of a reel-to-reel. <laughs> and then the other track got a different one. And so it was so delightful. And he taught me, he warned me when he saw me going astray with theology. 
didn't listen to him till later. And I looked him up years later and thanked him for correcting me, thanked him for warning me. And I said to him, you told me the truth. I didn't listen to you. I went into a group that was teaching the very things you warned me about. You told me the truth. I thank God for you. So I, I, it's a miracle. Excuse me, got a hold of him. And he was kind of sad. He said, my wife of 48 years fell down the stairs and died. And he, was, and he says, you wouldn't believe it. I'm assistant pastor in a Presbyterian church. But he was, uh, and I'm not attributing any bad motives to the guy. I had way more bad motives, as far as I could tell, than he had. But he uh, was put in charge of a Bible college because a wealthy donor had donated a bunch of land with buildings to the Assemblies of God and to create a Bible college. And he was put in charge of it to be president, which was a promotion. And it was seeming, it would be a good opportunity to help a whole lot of people. That's not what it seems like. And, um, but what happened in the meantime? That man who had such a profound influence on my life is now running a big institution where he used to be hands-on teaching students who God would use. So how much of the talents, the money, the resources, the motivation, how much of that is spent running a hundred different versions of institutional? A huge percentage of it. And then you end up on the local church level it has to survive and so the local church level you end up with the pastor that can produce the results because if you don't you're going to be in trouble with the bishops and everybody look at you, your church is shrinking you can't pay your bills, you can't do this you can't do that so that's why you get what you're talking about if you got the biggest church in the denomination and the most people and the most excitement and the best music and the best everything, you're a rock star. Yeah, that's right. But guess what happens? Many, many scandals. Go ahead. I was seeing Bob, you and I were talking on the phone this past week, and we had talked about how when Bethel was teaching solid doctrine, they had some of the best theologians that evangelicalism had put out. Thomas Schreiner, you had Versaput, Bob Stein, Stein all of these guys. And they're teaching solid theology, and they're losing Come money. On. So then what they do is they go to the seeker-sensitive slash emergent. They, they went to psychological. Yes. And then stuff. they start Psycho making gospel. money. And that sells. And heresy always sells. And that gets back to the narrow versus the wide gate. So if you're teaching the truth, don't let money or the lack thereof determine whether something's true. Numbers never determine whether something is true. What determines whether something is true if it corresponds to reality and the scriptures are what declare reality to us. And so that's what we have to go by. And it's deceptive to a lot of people. They think, well, we were making money teaching this. It must be true. The making of money, the numbers never determine well, yeah, what's and, true. And not to claim some special status because we don't have it, but it's human nature. That's why I think last week we talked about when Jesus used the same word, be on guard as the word translated beware many times. He said, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, 
which is hypocrisy. Beware the leaven of the Pharisee, which is hypocrisy. Why? Because it's human nature, because we live in a fallen world, that if you have a chance to have flowing robes and glorious titles and the accolades of your peers, that is enticing to everyone. I don't, no one goes into the ministry hoping to fail. And failure happens in life because we live in a fallen world. The real question is what happens? What can be the baseline that somebody could say, this is sine qua non, without which not? What is the baseline? Authority of scripture, priesthood of every believer, care for the flock, love people, don't worry about whether people think you're great or you're awful. Try to do the best you can in the situation God puts you. And failure is not determined by your peers in the religious community. It's determined by God, according to 1 Corinthians 4 or 5, in the future, because only he knows the motives of the heart. So we got to lay all that aside and take care of the flock and teach the truth and let God decide who did a good job or not, because we don't know. Yes, brother. Um, just wondering what you think of the like the para church ministries. Like I think of Grace to You, um, that was really big in in my life uh, mm-hmm. back in the eighties when I you know, came out of the Catholic system, and that that was on the radio, and it made a huge difference. But sure. Um, I think of like your ministry too, uh, CIC ministry, where you you get out and you speak the word, or whether it's through articles or whatever, and you're never asking for money during that. Any time you you are even even in your literature or on the radio, and I notice like Grace to You does ask for they they actually never really ask for money, but it seems like a lot of the parachurch ministries. It seems like they get into trouble when they when they're 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 trying to get bigger and bigger and bigger, and then they ask you know they they get into this this routine of asking for money and money, and then the leader of that group passes away or something happens, and then it just dissolves. But they, yet they they still try to to keep that ministry the going. The institution will survive longer than right. the people that founded it. So, what do you? I I know the importance okay, of, I, the, me, of the local me, church is really important. It's a really good question to ask. I would say this about it. It's not a sin to be organized. It's not a sin to publish the truth. In fact, it's commendable. It's not a sin to set up something that's functional enough that people can hear the truth. But it's foolhardy to think that they're somehow creating something that'll go on into perpetuity is a good thing when you don't know what will be, make it tick. So I, I try to think in terms of binding and loosing in Christian liberty rather than this is good or this is bad. Is it good that we have critical issues commentary and put material out so people can learn the truth? Well, I think that's a good thing. But it doesn't have to, what happens with it, if it, that's, that's not a big deal because it's not the church. Is it good that R.C. Sproul has videos out teaching theology? Yeah, it helps a lot of people. That's, 
he's, he's no longer on the scene of history. I'm not against publishing the truth, but the, the key issue is what is the church? And Eric went a long way last week just laying out the narrow game. If you assume that the masses are going to love it, probably got the wrong definition. Okay, John 6, or just look at it, look at the Gospels. So I don't really think money does most people much good unless they don't have enough to even do anything. Some people are good at making money. Uh, that's not a sin. Being poor isn't virtue, and being rich isn't a sin, or vice versa. It's neither here nor there. God puts people in different places according to his plan but being good stewards. So I'm not here to say the pair church is bad, but if it exists long enough, it'll probably be something that's not Christian anymore. I guarantee I wouldn't want to put my name on it. I had a debate with my friend that I was in Bible college with who ended up at Fuller. He was a pastor in Israel and did very well there, ended up at Fuller Seminary. And then Sort of believing the stuff they were teaching there, and then we were debating all the time. And so we were debating about the reformers, and we were talking about Luther and Calvin and Zwingli. I said, Well, I think Zwingli probably had the best ideas. But then he said, Well, who ever heard of a Zwinglian? So he'd have obviously failed. I said, Well, I don't think that makes him a failure. How, how do you like the idea of Luther and social services? telling people where they can go get an abortion. This was some years ago. And then he said, well, you got a point there. You suppose the Luther wants his name on that? So I would definitely get my name off of it because then you end up with a bad legacy if history goes on. Let's get, we got to get through this first. We literally have to get to verse 29 too. <laughs> Shepherd is... An analogy about caring for the press of sheep that belong to the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. And this version of overseeing and shepherding is grounded in, the, in being an episcopos, is grounded in the idea of visitation. Episc uh, the, the verb form visited, episcopatome, episcop Genesis 50, 24. I have some verses here. Uh, do you have those on the thing that I gave you, Brian? Yeah, were you on Genesis 50? Yeah, just show what the term means to visit. Uh, Genesis 50, 24, 25. Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised an oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. Yeah, take care of is in the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament, our word for episcopatome visit. In the original idea, when, when God visited, he's inspecting what's going on. It's, it's a metaphor because obviously God's omniscient. So visited there would be um, God will visit and see what your circumstances are and take care of you and get you to where you need to be. The other day I woke up at 30 and couldn't go back to sleep. So 
there you are. So we're, we were going to do a, a, we did a recording. So I took my Bible, started, I read about 15, 20 chapters of Genesis, starting with Jacob and going through Joseph. I may use that next, some of that next week in my sermon about Joseph fleeing from Potiphar's wife. But if you read the story of Israel and how God made a promise to Abram, Abraham, Isaac, and then the, the intrigue is real. Political intrigue is real everywhere because of the fall. And what happens? How did Joseph end up in charge of Egypt? Only because of God's work. Joseph didn't figure it out. Rejected by his brothers, sold into, dumped into a pit, lied about, brought to, by the, sold to the Midianites, ended up with Potiphar's wife. She lies about him. He runs out of there to get out of a bad situation. And then he gets in jail, and he interprets the dreams for these two guys in there. And the one that got out, he said, remember me when you, uh, you know, remember me. You're, gonna, you're going to be restored. Remember me. He forgot about him. So that's, so just the scripture is there. Just read it. So visiting is God taking care of us. And it doesn't require us to have some sort of a prophet out there telling us, do this and don't do this and take this step and not that one. Get this revelation. Go here. We don't know that. We know that God will take care of us and he'll get us there. And we don't even know how he's getting us there, but we do. And we don't, sometimes don't know what there is. Where it is, what it is. Suppose, did, uh, think about it. Did Joseph have a vision of being in charge of Egypt? No. The prophets and apostles are selling a bill of goods. Their visions are out of their own imagination or from somewhere even worse than that. Because they can't make it happen. God brings it to pass. So visited would be God taking care of, of them. Joseph said that after this event I just mentioned. Then Luke 1, 68, I'll read that. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. Isn't that, is that Zacharias? Who said that? Somebody look up the context of Luke 1, 68, and I'll read Luke 1, 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise on high will visit us. Zacharias. Zacharias, I thought so. And that would be the father of John the Baptist who had been mute until God touched him. And when he spoke, he prophesied. Did you know that people that are true, truly speaking for God by the Spirit, tell the truth? Did you know that God, the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, cannot lie? God cannot lie. Therefore, false prophecy is not from God. Zacharias told the truth. Now, in Luke Acts, this is a preview of Messianic salvation. So God visited people that for 400 years from the time of Malachi had no reason to think much was happening other than a lot of evil. Okay. Horrible things happened, even by Jewish people to their own the Hasmonean situation. The, the temple was rebuilt with the help of Herod, but he ended up being no big friend. 
So that when God work in history, here's another one. Luke 7, 16, fear gripped them all and they began glorifying God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. God has visited his people. So God's visitation is God caring for his own and bringing forth that which has been promised. Elders, shepherds, overseers are those who are looking after the well-being of the church which belongs to God because he purchased it with his own blood. And therefore, we are to know what God's revealed will is for his own flock and see that it actually happens, that we care for people that everyone might just overlook, that we care for people who are hurting and stumbling, that we care for people who wonder if maybe God gave up on them. Or There's so many needs and things that happen. And I'm advocating resisting the urge to create a well-funded institution to deal with the problems rather than making it a family. A family takes care of each other, and it doesn't have to be a highly educated leader. We, our prayers for one another, however feeble they may be, are answered by God. And I know that more than you can imagine. We, Jessica and I were recording yesterday, and she reminded me of the, time, the number of times I was supposed to die. And uh, the, the one time it appeared to be the real case, I was going to be in heaven soon. Uh, it wasn't that long ago. And a couple people asked for permission to put that one out all around to the critical issues people. And um, so here's these people praying for me. I don't even think I deserved it, but they did. They prayed for me. And I got a card from somewhere. I think it was South Africa with this. Got a bunch of cards, but one of them said, We pray. We know what it's like to know we might die any day because that's the world they lived in. But may God do in your life whatever would bring him the most glory. Amen. If that meant dying, then that's fine. That's ordinary people caring for each other, even in this case, from a long ways away. Not because we're part of the same institution, but because we're part of the same family. That's the church universal and militant. The family of God isn't constrained by geography. The local gathering is a real thing, as we see in the New Testament. Now, church of God, which he purchased. Shepherd is an important word, too, and then purchased. So purchased purchased with his own blood there's a debate about how is how does God have blood well obviously it's the blood of Jesus God the son the verb here is he's gained possession of us that through the purchasing of the church by the laid down life of Messiah and he paid the debt of sin that we had 
by his blood and made us his own. And what this does was, is tell us we can't make a hierarchy of who's important based on this world's standards. We can't say, oh yeah, look at that. I remember when Bob Dylan was supposedly converted. That didn't last very long. I mean, I've used this illustration before. A radio guy said, boy, God caught a big fish. Well, what makes Bob Dylan a big fish? Because he's known by the world. No, we can't import the world's value system about who's important into the church because the person that nobody ever heard of is precious in the sight of the Lord. And that's what we need to know. It says, uh, are you ready to quote another verse, Brian? Oh, no. I'm sorry. I was going to say, I've never seen this before, Bob. A quick implication here is what a great verse to prove the deity of Christ. Yeah. It's the blood of Christ, but it was his own blood. Right. And it's referred to as God's blood. Substitutionary atonement. Satisfaction of God's wrath. So this one you could use with Jehovah Witnesses who deny the deity of Christ. This would be a good one. Yes, absolutely. Very well said. 1 Timothy 3.13. For those who have served well as deacons obtained for themselves as a high standing the great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus obtained for themselves and it, which is the same word for, for purchased here and then um, as Eric has laid out boy that was a great one session where you laid out the offices of the church and who apostles and prophets are the thing what happens is there's elders and deacons and that's what's affirmed in the New Testament. And looking after the spiritual well-being, the practical well-being, and all of the above by the people that are not gaining status in the eyes of religious people for whatever it is that they do, we need to be content in serving that God knows and God will repay according to his eternal purpose. That passage in 1 Corinthians 4 or 5 has just been revolutionary for me. So I thought after Ephesians, I'll be ready to write a book, but then 1 Corinthians is just important. We don't know who did the best job. We don't know. Do not go on passing judgment before the time. Wait until the Lord comes who knows the motives of the heart. We're inadequate judges. We can judge the people did well, and we can honor God by thanking people for serving. We should always be grateful, thankful, and notice that people do care, and so on. But in the end, we don't know who's the greatest. Only God does. And we don't need to have ranks. We just need to serve. So he purchased the church with his blood. The word beware, I looked that up, um, and we were talking about it last week. Beware. Here's a very simple, this is simple, hermeneutics. When God says beware, pay attention. It's not complicated. 
You know, if you see this uh, Doberman with fangs salivating, beware the junkyard dog, you probably better not jump over the fence. How much more intimidating would it be if God says beware? But we ignore that one because we don't see, we see the dog, we don't see God saying beware. Here's what Jesus said about beware. Luke 20, 46. Luke 20, 46. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. Luke 20, 46. The same word, beware, as we have here, be on guard for the flock. Status honor created by the institutional church is like throwing a wrench into the gears of what we're supposed to learn. Because that's exactly what they do. Luke 20, 46. It's exactly what happens. It it happens throughout church history. They get longer robes, bigger, flashier buildings and hats and all this stuff and circumstance and look at me and parade around in places of honor. And even if you could argue that that's part of Christian liberty, which I'd have a hard time trying to defend, but let's say you could, that you don't mean anything by it. It's just, I don't know what you would say. If you understand the beware, you wouldn't do it for fear that it's going to destroy somebody who's not actually motivated by that. In other words, if you aren't motivated by status honor and by wanting somebody to think how great we are by God's grace, uh, then you don't want the temptation. Or you don't want someone else thinking, well, I want to do what that person did so I can have the role. Now, this is throughout Luke. Here's my question. We've had Luke throughout the church history since the time of the apostles. Anyone can read Luke. Scholars have read Luke. Church leaders have read Luke. It's right there. How could you read through Luke and end up with what we have out in most places called the church? Where the status honor is continually promoted. Exactly what Jesus says, beware, the the institutional church does. That's the thing that really blew me away at seminary. The scholars know what these things are, what they said, and they affirm them in the classroom to the students. And I love that. But when they get out into the bigger setting of the denominational headquarters meetings, I think they get intimidated. I don't know. I'm not the guy that's going to show up and try to blow up everything, although I have been kind of good at that. But uh, it just doesn't register. Go ahead, Brother Paul. Uh, Yeah, one further clarification, if you would, about the word beware, because he doesn't say avoid. 
you know, avoid, like sometimes he says don't even have supper with them or don't even, you know. So he doesn't say beware. I mean, he says beware, but he doesn't say avoid or shun or that. So well, Jesus it, went to the very meals where they were. Yeah, you read that in Luke. Jesus shows up at those meals. But what, is, what happens when he does? He offends everybody. How about the sinner woman who comes in and weeps at his feet at this fancy meal of honor? And she's crying and weeping on, on the feet of Jesus. And um, the key person says, well, now I know he's not a prophet or he know what kind of woman this is. And then it leads to a parable. Jesus came to bring sinners to repentance. So Luke lets us know what the danger is. And that's why the beware is there. He went to those meals, but it became an object lesson. He ends up rejected. It becomes an object lesson throughout. And then he cleanses 10 lepers and only one comes back glorifying God. Here's something everyone can do here. It has been so helpful to me. I really don't have a great commentary on Luke. So I have to do the work, a lot of the work myself. I have commentaries, but not a great one. I've got some great ones on Acts. Look at repeating terms. You could do that, uh, well, with that logo software, it's really easy. But it was doable with a strong concordance back in the day. Look at the term, for example, as a verb glorifying. Glorifying God. It comes up again and again. If you look at every time that's used in Luke and who it is that's glorifying God and in what context, you will understand Luke in a very profound way that's missed by many people. It's amazing who glorifies God. For example, 10 lepers cleansed, they're off to go show themselves. Why do they have to go show themselves? Because if they don't show themselves and declare cleansed, they can't be, nobody can get near them. How would you like to walk around shouting loudly so nobody got too close to you? Agathartos, agathartos, meaning unclean, unclean, unclean. Oh, unclean. Yeah. What a life that would be. Unclean, wherever you go. Now they're clean. If the, if the priests say, yeah, you're clean, then you can go into the synagogue and sit at the meal and you're back into social function. But one of them who was cleansed because they couldn't do that themselves went back to Jesus and glorified God. One, where are the others that came back to glory to thank Jesus? One, and guess who it was? Samaritan. And isn't that profound in the context of the Great Commission in Luke Acts? Go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. The, the, and so uh, you can do that. If, if that's, and I'm not telling you what book you need to study. You're, doing, you're all doing your own studies. But if you want to study any book, look for repeated terms and you know, how they're used and in what context. Understanding that there's a range of meaning. Oh, my, I thought I'd get through this verse. I think I will. Um, 
Okay, so Eric talked about the Holy Spirit setting to overseers, to shepherd. We need to talk about that. Let's see what the next verse is. Okay, we'll do the shepherd part in a few weeks when I'm teaching this again. So you can think about this. So it says, shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his blood. Purchased with his blood tells us a lot about the atonement, redemption, and how you're part of the church by believing in the Lord Jesus and his shed blood is substitutionary and averts God's wrath against our sin. And then shepherd is a term that would make us think of wolves. The wolves want to devour the flock. The wolves are everywhere. The wolves are your neighbors, religious leaders, teachers. They're just out there and they have a religious agenda and they're going to uh, take you away from the relationship you had have with the chief, chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, and the flock, others purchased with the blood, and your own well-being. Ultimately, well, this is a preview. Uh, Yahweh is shepherd. Let me just read this as we close. Well, let me, I'll read Psalm 28, 7 through 9. The Lord, in NASB, all caps is Yahweh. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him, and I am helped. Therefore, my heart exalts, and with my song I shall thank him. The Lord is their strength, and he is a saving defense to his anointed. Verse 9, Psalm 28. Save your people and bless your inheritance. Be their shepherd also and carry them forever. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep and carries them along. And so next time we'll talk about um, beware of the wolves and what the wolves are all about and how the, we need church leaders being elders to guard us and then equip the saints for the work of the ministry so we can guard each other and guard the family of God. The wolves are everywhere and they are hungry but you don't want to be their food. Let's pray. Thank you Lord for your goodness and kindness. Pray for Pastor Eric as he teaches us from Matthew. May our hearts be open to the truth and may we encourage one another in that truth to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you.